I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. We knew we were different. The way that we dressed was obviously different. And in my family and in the culture I grew up in, I was taught that we were the one and only true people of God on the whole face of the earth. And we believed in polygamy. Today, we're talking to director Rachel Dretzen. For decades, members of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints practiced an extreme form of Mormonism, one in which men need to take multiple wives to achieve eternal salvation. When their leader, Rulin Jeffs, died in 2002, his son Warren took the reins of the FLDS. The group's practices of polygamous marriages and underage brides accelerated, while Jeffs built a secluded ranch where he took members' children. But with the help of former members of the church, women forced into arranged marriages while they were children, the law finally caught up with him. Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey paints a disturbing picture of the modern subjugation of women and the effects of tyrannical control dressed up as religious obedience. It presents many women who fled their underaged marriages and the outsiders who worked to expose the FLDS's illegal actions. You don't know any better until you get away from it. And getting away from it is the hard part. It happens to everybody eventually. You will come around and see the light and go, what the fuck? Rachel Dretzen, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, from your perspective, uh, what did you learn that it means to, quote, keep sweet? Keep sweet is a kind of central saying inside the FLDS. Um, and it's used, I, when I initially heard it, I thought it was just meant for women, but it's actually meant for both women and men, boys and girls. It basically means keep your emotions to yourself, act nice, swallow whatever feelings you have, and keep a smile on your face. So it's sort of like the version of keep calm and carry on, but it's a little bit more repressed than that, it sounds like. Yeah, I think it's a little more of a kind of tyranny of the mind, I would say, mm. which is pretty, pretty emblematic of uh, the culture of the FLDS. Emotions are not encouraged. Yeah. Expression of emotions. Yeah. So how did the story of the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints come your way? Well, it's interesting. I have a production company um, and I have a vice president of development, a wonderful guy named Zach Herman. And he came to me, it's got to be three years ago now, because he had received a tip from a colleague, a woman named Allison DeMam, who is now one of our executive producers, about this story. She had a relationship with the private investigator in our series, Sam Brower, who actually has published a book about the FLDS. She thought it was an incredible story. She couldn't do it where she was. She was looking for a really strong storyteller to take it on. And I will never, I can never thank Allison enough for, for bringing it to us. But my first reaction was actually not great. I had never heard of the FLDS before, but when I heard polygamy and underage marriage, I thought, oh boy, this sounds sleazy. 
you know? And I started to dig. And it was when I started to dig that I started getting really interested. So when you describe it to people, people who are familiar with, you know, mainstream Mormonism as, you know, as they may be familiar with it or seen it in pop culture, how do you explain the way that FLDS is different? Well, the FLDS is often confused with the LDS, uh, which is the mainstream Mormon church, but they're really, really different things. The FLDS broke off from the mainstream Mormon church over 100 years ago when the Mormon church renounced polygamy, which they had to do in order to be mainstreamed. And the FLDS and a bunch of other small groups said, we want to keep practicing polygamy. And so that's how they started. And over the years, the FLDS has become the largest fundamentalist polygamist Mormon group, but they are not the only one. I think the Mormon church looks at the FLDS with a lot of embarrassment, discomfort. You know, they kind of give them a bad name. But the truth is polygamy is practiced in the Mormon church as well. It's just kind of on Mm. the down low. So when you were setting out to make this documentary, do you see it as a documentary about a cult, like more of a wild, wild country? Or do you see it as a documentary about survivors? I think it's both, to be honest. I mean, there's no question that the FLDS became a cult. I'm not sure it started that way, but it certainly became one under the Jeff's family rule. But, you know, our focus in this documentary is not only on the experience of being in that cult. It's on the people, particularly the women, who managed to defy it and escape it, which, if you know anything about the FLDS, is a pretty miraculous and incredible thing to do. Um, These people are born into this uh, religion, into this cult. And in order to leave it, they're leaving everything, their families, any hope of having a community, everything they've ever known. It's really different than a cult you join because they've been in it since they were born. Um, And it takes a tremendous amount to get out of it. You know, it's interesting that you should say that because, you know, the answer to the question about, you know, why a woman would allow her husband to marry multiple wives seems to be either it's been what she's been raised to believe or that she has no way to resist. And it's more complicated than that, it seems, from watching your documentary, right? No, you're absolutely right. And actually, that was a big like moment for me when I was reporting the story, when I started realizing these women are just like us. I mean, you know, they mm. were they were born into a very different society, but they have the same jealousies and longings and crushes and sexual fantasies and sexual, you know, whatever it is, um, discomfort that that we all have as women. And relating to them was really like, revelatory and realizing like, if I had been born into this society, I would function very similarly to the way they did. We tell the story in the documentary of Ruby Jessup, who, you know, gets this massive crush on this boy, even though it's completely forbidden when she's, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old and, you know, listens to ABBA songs secretly on the mountain watching, you know, over his house. So I snuck a phone, went to my room. We started talking almost every night. We talked about everything what we would do if we ever got married, what we would name our kids. We might not have even talked. We just sat and listened to each other breathe. You know, just those kind of things that we all can relate to happen inside the FLDS, just like they do outside the FLDS. Yeah, I was really struck by Ruby Jessup's story. I mean, the prophet had other plans for her. How did you find her story in particular? 
she, you know, there was a Ruby, when Ruby left the FLDS, I think it was the, yeah, it was the last time she left actually a couple times. We only really tell the story of one time in the series, but she had to go to a judge to get her children back and out of the group because her husband Mm. had them. Um, This is not, unfortunately, a story we're able to tell in the series, but it's an amazing story. And so I saw a news clip of a press conference she gave when that happened. And I thought, this woman's really, she's really interesting. And I tracked her down and I'll never forget the first time I met her, she came to my hotel. She had moved back to Short Creek after leaving it, gotten her children back. She sat down and within five minutes, I looked at her and I was like, you are so real. I mean, she was just right there. She is so honest and open and just real. I knew immediately she she had to be in the series, even before I'd heard her whole extraordinary story. Hmm. And you were also able to speak to Joe, who was her teenage love interest, right? Yeah, that was great. Yeah, tracking Joe down and the fact that he was willing to talk to us was so exciting. You know, we just didn't know. He doesn't live in Utah anymore. He's got a whole new family and it was just thrilling to meet him. And they've held on to their love for each other. That's one of the most beautiful things about their story is they both remember it so vividly and so similarly, and they still love each other. So kind of I sort of on the other end of the story spectrum, we meet Lloyd and Myrna Wall. Um, They say that one evening Lloyd was approached and told he was going to take a second wife. And Myrna says that was the first time he ever met her or her him. And we took her home. We took her home that night. So we took her home that night. (laughs) Um, The way the story was told, it sounded a little bit like, you know, bringing a puppy home from a shelter. Uh, It sounded very nonchalant. Did it come across that way to you when you were there interviewing them? A little bit. You know, I think obviously Myrna explains that she wasn't comfortable with the idea at first, but, you know, it was a central part. It is a central part, if not the central part of the FLDS belief system is that you have to have multiple wives in order to go to heaven. And so she kind of steeled herself. Um, and it is true. I mean, marriages happen obviously more frequently inside the FLDS and they often do happen very last minute. It's like you literally find out that day you're getting married. Hmm. And most of the time you don't know who you're getting married to and you don't know them. In this case, you know, this was a woman that I think Lloyd had noticed before, but, you know, had never spoken to. Um, Myrna had never met her. And all of a sudden they're in the same family. I mean, what an incredible crazy ride that is. So when the documentary begins, uh, Rulin Jeffs is the longtime prophet for the FLDS. And it seems like compared to what came after his death, it was a time of relative stability uh, for the sect. Like they were sort of they were laying kind of low and, you know, it seemed sort of stable. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, things were definitely, they were even more stable before Rulin came in. There was another prophet, Leroy Johnson. Um, but yes, certainly during the first years of Rulin's rule, things were pretty stable. They weren't marrying uh, girls off underage, which they started doing later. They weren't separating families. They weren't controlling and policing people the way they ended up doing after Warren Jeffs became prophet. And the FLDS were more integrated into the outside world, particularly the people that were living in Salt Lake City. Um, you know, they had regular jobs, a lot of them. And the, inter- the, you know, there was just a more, there was more, you know, of a relationship, I would say, between people inside and people outside. Things got much darker. 
So they weren't as isolationist. That's really interesting to me because Ruland had something like 60 plus wives. Uh, you know, we hear from Rebecca Wall, who was one of them. But like, what does that household look like, especially when you're not in an isolationist community? You know, uh, living, you know, it, they, all, they all all live together. Is it sort of like an adjacent community sort of situation? I was just very curious about the I don't want to sound trite about it, but kind of the logistics. And he's yeah. an elderly man and all of these women, you yeah. know, this like phalanx of, of women? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question, and I think it's pretty fascinating. Most of Rulin's wives happened in the last years of his life because his son, Warren, was the one who kind of encouraged him to marry a lot of these particularly younger women. So I think he had like 24 wives, and then in the last, like, I don't know, five years of his life, he married another 40 women. Um, and by then, things were definitely more sort of segregated in terms of the way they lived. Rulin had a home in Salt Lake City or near Salt Lake City, and then another home in Short Creek, which is down on the Utah-Arizona border. And these homes, I've been in these homes. I mean, they are like hotels. You know, they just, mm. they feel you walk through them and they just, they're just endless rooms, gigantic kitchens with like picnic tables looking, you know, just, it feels like you're in almost like a camp or a hotel. And, you know, the women, the wives were really close to each other a lot, especially the younger ones. You know, it was like they had their own sisterhood. And I think by then, by the time there were that many wives, they kept themselves pretty separate. You know, I mean, it's not like he went to work every day in a mainstream, you know, non-FLDS uh, business or anything like that. The Wall family also, you know, describes how the, even before, even in the early days, they didn't go as a family out to like big, you know, they didn't go to movies, they didn't go to theme parks, you know, they, they stayed pretty close and on their compound for the most part. But their neighbors knew, and their neighbors suspected that they were polygamous. I mean, a lot of people in Utah kind of, it's like a don't ask, don't tell kind of situation where like, yeah, it's pretty clear what's going on, but we're not going to ruffle any feathers by asking questions. You know, one of the things about your documentary is the kind of thing where it like stokes the viewer's curiosity. I mean, I watched it and then I immediately like went online and did my own like rabbit hole. I had to. I mean, it's just that kind of story. Um, I suspect and I don't know if you think the same that Warren Jeffs maybe convinced his father to marry all these women because within a week after his father's death, he then married all but two of his father's wives, something I was shocked to learn. Warren started marrying his own mothers after Rowan died. That was really messed up. That was hard for people like me to swallow. And, uh, and I, there's a lot of people that had a problem with that. I mean, who marries your mom? Was that surprising when you heard details like that about Jeff's just like Warren, Jeff's just immediate, immediate power grabs the moment his father died? Well, what you, what you, yes. And it, it, you're absolutely right. That's why I mean, clearly that's why Warren was marrying his or encouraging his father to marry all these younger women is that he intended to marry them himself. Um, there are actually rumors that he got a couple of them pregnant even before his father died because of the timing of their baby's births. But, you know, Warren had a plan in place. There, there's little question about it. I mean, he, he actually studied Hitler, believe it or not. And when you look hmm. at a lot of his tactics, once he, even before he became prophet, but certainly once he became prophet, they actually, it's, they, they ramp up. They're very systematic. You know, um, he starts by, you know, marrying his father's wives. And then he starts closing the community more and more off to the world. He concentrates everybody in one place. He moves everybody who lives in, in Salt Lake City down to Short Creek, takes kids out of public schools, starts 
putting cameras up around the community so that people are monitored, starts restricting their clothing. Then he starts kicking people out who might pose a threat. You know, there's that story of the 21 men who are kicked out publicly in a church service by Warren. And then he starts separating families and reassigning families and just using fear as a weapon to get people to do whatever he asks them to do. And then he creates this ranch, you know, which this Zion, and it becomes this almost like a cleansing of the society where only the most pure, only the most righteous, only the most devoted people can go. So everybody's just panicked about disobeying him because all they want to do is get to Zion. And it just gets darker and darker and creepier and creepier. But he does it in a really systematic way. Hmm. So there were no, like, were there other contenders to be the leader after Roland's death? I mean, I found myself being curious about that because there were lots of children, right? I mean, there were lots of men, assuming, I'm assuming that that could have also claimed that role. Absolutely. You know, there wasn't, there isn't like a explicit kind of succession policy or law in the FLDS. So actually, it isn't clear when one prophet dies what's going to happen. And there were some other leaders in the community that people thought had a better chance of becoming the prophet. This guy, Uncle Fred, who was the bishop of Short Creek, who was very respected, was a, a strong, a lot of people thought he was going to be the prophet. And I think people were actually surprised and taken aback when Warren kind of snatched that title, which he, he really did. Because he was kind of a, I mean, I don't want to say he was a schmo, but he wasn't, he really wasn't somebody that particularly down in Short Creek, people knew well and thought of as a, as a potential prophet. You know, he had this holier than thou attitude. And even though he could be funny, he came across kind of abrasive. Yeah. I mean, he was described as sort of a nerd. <laughs> yeah. And we, we saw him singing and, yeah. you know, it's just not exactly exuding that authoritarian power that he then later took on. Elisa Wall described her horror at being forced to marry her cousin at 14. She cried and begged her mother to call it off. And my mother just squeezed my hand and I could feel all of the desperation in her being communicated through that. And that was that last moment when I realized that it wasn't just about me. Not only was my salvation hanging in the balance, my mother's was as well. Was it common for child brides to protest this way or not? Elisa Wall, is a, is, she's a very unusual woman. She's very bright. She has a kind of internal compass that I think even in her, you know, young adolescent self, it existed. And, you know, the Wall family is the family we obviously spend the most time with in the series. They, they the parents of both Rebecca and Elisa. And as a matter of fact, Charlene Wall also is the daughter of Lloyd um, and Myrna. So three of our characters come from that family. And one of the things that's unusual about that family is that, that Lloyd converted, Lloyd and Myrna converted to the FLDS. And so he and his wife, Myrna, have both had some experience outside the church and some education. And that kind of critical thinking is, is rare. And I think they passed it on to their kids. So I think Elisa always had a little bit of perspective, maybe, that she got, she sort of, even though she was born into the church, she was sort of passed down through her parents. Um, that helped her have the confidence and the way, the rashness to challenge the prophet. Hmm. You just don't do that. You do not challenge the prophet. Hmm. Elisa said when she was crying, her mother squeezed her hand and she felt like there was a message in that squeeze. What yeah. was that message? I think the message was, if you go down, I'm going down with you. I mean, 
you know, to resist a marriage that the prophet has, you know, decreed is an act of tremendous rebellion. And I think for Elisa, the turning point was realizing that, you know, if, if she walked out of that room, her mother would not survive in the church. And they, you know, everything is connected to the afterlife. Everything's connected to like, are you going to go to heaven? Are you going to have an afterlife? And so she felt responsible for her mother's chance at an afterlife, eternal life, as they call it, um, as well as her own. You have a lot of footage that seems to come from within the FLDS. How did you get that footage? Well, you know, when we started working on this documentary, I didn't know where, how we were going to visualize what happened because, you know, these people were not allowed to, most of them not allowed cell phones. They weren't allowed to go on the internet. So I just assumed there would be very little footage as it turned out, you know, because people are people, people did film, you know, and the more, the more we got into the story, the more we learned about what existed, about the sort of treasure trove of archival footage from inside the FLDS that existed just in people's phones and computers. And so everybody we met, we asked, and a lot of them had stuff and they shared it with us. And what emerged was a really rich documentation of a society that actually, even though there have been certainly other pieces of journalism about the FLDS, you really don't see that much footage from inside. Can I just ask you a a question that may, again, seem unimportant, but as a viewer, because there's so much of it, um, the aesthetic of the the dress and the and the presentation of the women in the FLDS, the pastels, the hairstyles in particular. You know what the origin story of, of that is? You know, I, I only know that Warren had very particular kind of fetishes when it came to women's hair. He was very, mm. very particular about what he liked. And he liked this high kind of oval shaped style where they would like quaff the top of their hair over their forehead and then braid everything else. And he wanted no loose hairs. And it was like unbelievably elaborate. You see in the doc, you have, we have this hairstyle video, this like hairstyle video that the FLDS made to show women how to do their hair in the FLDS way. It's one of my favorite pieces of footage and they produced it. We meet a local TV reporter who seems to take up this story as a crusade, uh, Mike Watkiss. Mm-hmm. When you met him, did his personality match the crusader we saw in those reports? <laughs> well, you know, one of the funny things about Mike Watkiss is his physical transformation, right? From the time he was reporting for the local news in Arizona to the time we interviewed him, he looks almost unrecognizable, kind of let himself go full hippie since then, since he stopped working at, uh, on the local news. He's not nearly as straight-laced. But, you know, he's a really smart guy who just does his own thing. And that was true then. It's what gave him, I think, the gumption to go after this story and be so ruthless and relentless about his pursuit of the truth. And he's still like that. Hi, is this the Jeff's residence? This is. Is Mr. Jeff's in? Yes. He says no comment right now. No comment. Um, Love to sit down and talk to him about a variety of issues. Hi. They just called me and said uh, there's a news crew on our property and we want them off. They want want us off? He's an iconoclast. He does things his own way. I have a lot of respect for him. Hmm. When it was clear that the authorities in at least three states and the FBI were coming for him, Warren Jeffs had been on the run for months. Where does a prophet go when he's on the lam? 
Oh man, that's an incredible story. I mean, he he went, he was like a traveling road show. They went to Mardi Gras in New Orleans and strip clubs. And he was watching porn in motel rooms with his wives. He had Harley Davidson motorcycles that he never really learned how to drive. He was really out living it up, enjoying all the pleasures of the Gentile world that he's supposed to dis- despise. He had his favorite wife, Naomi, with him a lot of the time and one of his brothers. And they would wear, they wore like regular clothing, T-shirts and, you know, cool clothes. And they just went everywhere. They enjoyed themselves thoroughly. He, he said he was like sampling the world's evils as a way of kind of witnessing them. But actually what he was doing was going to, you know, going to strip clubs and watching NFL games and riding motorcycles and having a grand old time with the hundreds of thousands of dollars that his followers were donating to his support. He had all the money in the world to play with, and he had thousands of people who would hide him and protect him, and he had a really good time, as far as I can tell. It was Elisa Wall who made the criminal allegations that sent Jeffs to prison. Was the belief that once he was behind bars, something would change within the FLDS? Well, I think people like Elisa and her sister and uh, the private investigators and attorneys who worked on the case believed that things would change once Warren was behind bars. But that belief did not end up to be accurate at all. As a matter of fact, Warren's power in many ways increased once he was put in prison because he was martyred. And he he had, you know, throngs of people who could get his messages out of prison. They would come and record his revelations and then play them or he would call in. He would often call in and there was like this loudspeaker system that was set up where intercoms throughout some of the homes, people would be able to hear his prophecies when he called in in all of their homes And he started issuing weirder and weirder revelations that caused people to do weirder and weirder things. And it just got darker and more controlling and more tyrannical after he went to jail. It wasn't until like five, six years ago that things really started falling apart. And that was Mm. long after he went to prison. But he's still considered to be the prophet of the church, right? Absolutely. He's still considered to be the prophet of the church. And I think, you know, what's changed is that Short Creek, where so many of them lived, has now not, it's no longer the center of the FLDS. People are scattered. They've sort of broken up the monopoly that the church had on that town. And so they're, they're more, they're more separate now and they're, they're not as concentrated, but they still believe he's the prophet. They still do everything he says. As a matter of fact, Warren, one of the more recent revelations Warren issued was that nobody was allowed to have sex with their spouse or even touch their spouse and they weren't allowed to have children anymore. And so people are not, people in the FLDS do not get pregnant. They do not have babies. Babies have stopped happening. Doesn't seem like a great way to keep your religion going. It doesn't, but I I think he's, he's kind of lost his mind. Um, Mm. I think it's like, if I can't have sex and if I can't have babies, I don't want my followers to have babies. At least that's what people say is motivating it. Who knows what's motivating it? But yeah, I mean, I met young girls still in the FLDS, not that young, in their 20s, who are not going to get married because Warren said they can't. Well, the women that you introduced us to are now in their 30s and have left the church. What has their acclimation and their life in the real world been like for them? You know, it's been really, really hard. The scars of that experience are going to be with them for the rest of their lives. And they've all had to fight really, really hard to sort of find their own peace. 
so many of us are still functioning under the shadow of the past. I thought I was further along than I was. And you have these moments as an adult where you're like, I know nothing. I know nothing. <laughs> that said, these were fierce women to begin with. I mean, you had to be fierce to leave that community and make a new life. And that, that fierceness has manifested in all sorts of really inspiring ways. You know, Rebecca Musser, who was Rebecca Wall, is a real estate agent living in um, the Idaho area. Her sister, Elisa, does a lot. She has some businesses. She does a lot of work helping people transition out of the FLDS. A lot of them are involved in supporting other people who are trying to leave or who have just left. But most of them have families and have managed to find happiness, uh, which is really inspiring. And I think is kind of the message, if there is a message of this series, is that, you know, no matter what kind of trauma you go through, this possibility does exist of a new life. Rachel, you didn't make a story about something that happened. Uh, you made a story about a world, about people, about survivors. How do you walk away from telling a story like this? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I don't, to be honest. I still, you know, have a relationship with many of the people we interviewed in the series, and I probably always will. I, I certainly feel a responsibility to them. Um, you know, being in a series like this on a platform like Netflix, you know, it's it's pretty exposed for them, um, and it's really brave. And I, I, I really hope for them it's a very positive experience, but I... I don't want to walk away from them. Um, and, you know, I think I'll always go back to that area. It's spectacularly beautiful, first of all. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And the people are just wonderful, strong, courageous, um, fascinating human beings. And so I'm going to miss working on this project. I don't always feel that way, but, but I really will. Well, that strength, that courage, it certainly comes across in Keep Sweet. Rachel Dretzen, thank you so much for talking with me about it. I enjoyed this documentary so, so much. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Rachel Dretzen. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.